iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone, this is The Ruck from The Times and The Sunday Times. Welcome back and what an opening Six Nations weekend we have had. Ireland made the statement of all statements by beating France in Marseille. England battled to a win over Italy, but perhaps displayed signs of improvement. And Wales and Scotland played out an instant Six Nations classic. I'm Alfie Reynolds, welcome back. And throughout this podcast, it's going to be... A bit of a throwback to our World Cup episodes for those of you that followed us around France where we heard from our various different journalists and reporters depending on what games they were at. So we're going to hear from Alex Lowe and Will Kelleher who were watching England in Rome. Mark Palmer is going to join me to look back on that ridiculous match in Cardiff and starting off with the opening match of the weekend, Owen Slot and Peter O'Reilly were watching Ireland beat France in Marseille. Thanks for joining me, gents. How are you? Was it was it a game that lived up to to the occasion and the expectations? Slotty, how did you find it? Um, I, I've I've been really sad since I've got back because I feel I haven't been on the vibe at all. I I don't think it was it was an occasion to uh, to fulfil expectation and and that and and that and that's quite simply because because Ireland was so good that they killed it and France was so bad that they that they let it they let it be killed. I, I don't know what Pete thought, but the um, the French national anthem. When I was listening to that, I was I was I was thinking this is really going to be massive. It was it was a, it felt really epic, and it wasn't it wasn't like the World Cup because there weren't so many Irish fans there. It didn't have that 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 same feel. I mean, that, maybe it's impossible to sort of to go there. We didn't have the zombie. We did, um, but uh, you know, all that didn't seem to matter much to the Irish team because they were um, they were so extraordinarily accomplished. The disappointment of Paris quarterfinal just doesn't seem to have happened you know um, whereas you wouldn't say the same about the French anyway I probably probably answered everything I thought about the whole match in that one reply but no I I felt disappointed because I was just never I was never excited about which way the game was going to turn because the game turned in one green direction so early. Well as Slotty says Peter that tells us the story of the game in a way wasn't it it was a dominant performance from Ireland what what was your take on it and what's been the reaction in Ireland because there was a big question coming in of where were both of these teams after such disappointment at the World Cup and it was chalk and cheese Ireland picked up where they left off France on the other hand well we'll maybe get on to them but where they go from here I think is quite fascinating yeah well I think the reaction here is probably one of um uh well great Great happiness, but also slight surprise also, because we wondered how Ireland would react 
to the disappointment of the World Cup. And clearly, they managed to turn the page very quickly, whereas France struggled. Like like Owen, I was worried beforehand in terms of the, the atmosphere in Marseille, which is it's a much more claustrophobic stadium than the Stade de France. And the anthems were spine-chilling. Certainly, the Marseillaise was spine-chilling. Ireland's young out-half, Jack Crowley, makes a mistake with his first touch. Jalibert counters. The crowd are with are with France, and, and you're wondering where this is going to go, and it doesn't look great. But Ireland's mental strength and their execution were on such a such a higher level that it became not quite one-way traffic. I mean, I, I watched the game back last night, and there were, there were moments in the third quarter when it was 14 v 14, and Peter Omani had just been sent to the bin, and Olivon just scored for France. Jemson Gibson Park, who had you know, who was superb throughout, he put the ball out on the full, and there's that moment where you wonder, are Ireland going to doubt themselves? But they didn't, and uh, that was the most impressive thing was the way that any time France looked like getting any sort of a head of steam, and they you know they did have their moments in in the scrum. Ireland were able to return to their their other basics, which was the lineout, which was superb, but also the hunger and their technical excellence in defence. And then the way they protected the ball. I mean, Sean Edwards talked about it afterwards. Sean Edwards is obviously the the defence coach for France. He said Ireland turned the ball over four times in the in the whole game, which is which is massive. They and the good thing from uh, from uh, rugby's point of view, I think, was that um, Ireland are a team that likes to play positive rugby to keep the ball rather than to kick it away, and they were rewarded uh, for the excellence of their of their ball retention and their execution in attack. So. There's um there's great happiness here and we've yeah, we have moved on now, I think. And Slotty, putting aside the perhaps disappointment that it didn't live up to the occasion, the World Cup final we never got as it was being billed in, in the French media, putting aside that for a moment, Stephen Jones in the Sunday Times described it as one of the greatest performances the championship has ever seen. Would do you agree with that in terms of just how good Ireland were? No, I, I don't actually. Um, again, I'm being so miserable about this. So uh, my mind went, first of all, in, in terms of the gallery of outstanding Ireland performances, there's quite a lot to choose from now. And that was that's certainly a contender um, Friday night. But my mind went back to the uh, Ireland-France game at the Aviva in the Six Nations a year ago, which I was just completely spellbound by it that was an extraordinary performance by Ireland but it was also a, a really a phenomenally high level performance by France as well so Ireland had far more to contend with and to deliver that winning performance against a brilliant France team now that is a that is a really high standard that Ireland put out a year ago what they did on, on Friday was they quelled a team that was I thought like four or five out of ten and that had 14 players on the pitch for most of the for most of the uh, most of the game, so you can't really knock Ireland for that. You know, cliches about you can only beat what's in front of you. Yes, the the pressure that they put on uh, certainly contributed to to France um, uh, being so disappointing. But but there were, there were just things like compare it to a, a year ago. The the level of the French aggression w- was down. The their commitment. Um, uh, it's competing at rucks was down. I just feel that that Ireland were allowed to put in that dominant display, whereas a year ago they had to scrap for every single one of the eighty minutes uh, to to prove themselves. Well, on France, then question to both of you, really, whoever wants to pick it up. But do we think? And I suppose we won't know until we see more of them in this championship. But what's your gut instinct from having been there on Friday night? Was this just 
a team that for whatever reason were well below par or do you think there's bigger cause for concern for where this team actually now is? I'd, I'd, I'd expect them to, to bounce back fairly aggressively in Edinburgh next week because they, they know that they have disappointed their public. Uh, they know there was huge expectation. And what I'd be interested in knowing um, is why there was that lack of energy, which, which Owen mentioned. What Sean Edwards teams are known for is the you know the the aggression of their line speed and the way they shut you down that just wasn't there uh, it was partly to do with with the speed that Ireland were generating but that that in turn is in, is is down to the what happens at the in the collision zone so i know that um obviously the when when the France's world cup campaign finished it was up to the different clubs as to how they would bring bring their players back into into top 14 action so they've had a slightly scattergun approach to that to that um they've had different experiences since the world cup whereas the irish system as you know is much more uniform much more managed i don't know if that's anything to do with it but there was a there was a lack of energy about france which which is surprising given what was at stake given the atmosphere so i'd love to i'd love to know the answer to that question and peter just quickly for someone that covers ireland every game they play and has done for a long time what did you make of it in in terms of overall performance and where it ranks in terms of great Irish performances? I think it ranks uh, pretty highly uh, because of the way in which three players managed to be integrated so quickly and to play so well. Those are the the three youngsters, Crowley at 10, Joe McCarthy. That's who everybody's talking about over here, by the way, to answer your initial question. They're all talking about Big Joe in the second row, but also Calvin Nash, uh, did really well on the right wing. He, you know, was a, that was an excellent Six Nations debut. It was only his second cap, and he looked to the manner born. It's a testament to the system, isn't it, Peter? We always speak about the system and how cohesive a team Ireland are. Was it a further testament to that and the job that Mike Cat and Andy Farrell and Paul O'Connor and all those coaches do in that you have players come in and immediately can slot into that team so seamlessly? Well, yes, in, in, with in relation to uh, to Crowley and Calvin Nash in particular, because there was the part of the reason why Ireland are so cohesive was that there were sixteen Leinster players in the twenty three. And what's what's interesting when you look at the defensive performance of the team is that beforehand we were all wondering in the media about how Ireland were going to deal with going back to the Ireland defensive system when sixteen of the players have been trying to learn the Jacques Nienaber. Uh, defense system at Leinster, and and they haven't. They've struggled a little bit with that. Uh, they've admitted. And Ninaber himself says, "Oh, it takes sec- it takes fourteen weeks to bed in my system." That's the way it was with the Springboks, and that's the way it will be with with Leinster. But na- now it seems as though his influence may have been evident on Friday night in the line speed, but also in what happened after after the tackle. If you track Caelan Doris, you know, uh, in particular, I just noticed that. I, he would make a tackle and then and then counter ruck and you know it was all all energy all aggression and uh, it was on a different level from France. So uh, you mentioned Paul O'Connell, hat tip to him definitely uh, because the lineout was an issue. It was a weak point during the World Cup. New Zealand managed to upset it in the quarterfinal. South Africa managed to upset the Irish lineout in, in the the pool game as well. Friday night, 14 out of 14, but not just 14 out of 14. It was seemed like every throw, every catch was at, was at the high point of, of the throw. The quality of the ball off the top was top class. But they also nicked four balls from France as well. 
And everything that, that Ireland tend to do well in attack uh, goes back to the quality of their line-out. So they sorted that out. They had about 10 days together in Portugal. That was their first camp since the World Cup. They seemed to do a lot of good work in that camp. And Slotty, do you think that the weekend as a whole was an example of certainly Ireland, I think people would still include France in this, but maybe not after Friday night, but certainly at least Ireland, the standard that they're at compared with everyone else yes, in this situation. Yes, Six completely. I'm, I was just left wondering how far ahead they are or admiring how far ahead they are. And, um, you know, that's that's after the first weekend of a Six Nations, that's exactly the type of comment that's going to make you look really stupid probably a week, a week away or something because that's just the, the, the competition as, as we know. But, yeah, they would they would just... What what they did was, was different, way different to everyone else, Um uh, I've heard people um, saying that the England game at Twickenham could could be the one that trips them up, but Christmas England have got to go a hell of a long way on their improvement curve to to, to make that a um, a, a big uh, test for the Irish. I, I really hope they do. We're talking back to back Grand Slams here. I'm now at the point where I'd be surprised if they don't if they don't achieve that. I mean, that's just you know real hat tip. They are really really on it um and uh I, again it's something a, a bit to do with the four-year process which some people kind of roll their eyes at uh, Ireland haven't sort of have sort of been quite sort of firm on this it's not a four-year process we're pretty much picking up where we where we left off if you ignore the quarterfinal and that's how it looks and um so other teams maybe gone back a bit or whatever but they're, they're um they're way out ahead yeah, first team, possibly, if they do it, to do back-to-back Grand Slams in the Six Nations era. Peter, on our preview podcast, looking ahead to the game, you were saying France are definitely favourites. <laughs> well, Ireland have dispatched them. I don't think you can get away from the fact now that Ireland are heavy, heavy favourites, aren't they, to, to win it again? Thanks for reminding me about that <laughs> prediction. <laughs> um, yeah, they're, they're unbackable favourites now. Um, but what was... What I noticed about the post-match Andy Farrell's press conference with Peter O'Mahony was just how uh, how low-key he was. You know, he, he his body language wasn't that dissimilar from the body language at the press conference post-quarterfinal. You know, uh, he, he he talks about it just being part of a journey, um, about being the best version of themselves, all that sort of thing. Uh, but to become the first ever Six Nations back-to-back Grand Slam winners, that would be a reasonable solution or a, a reasonable cure to the World Cup hangover you'd have to admit but they they will be respectful of, of Italy they also they do have a, a nine day turnaround which which gives him which gives Farrell uh, interesting selection uh, options and then they'll have another two week gap before they play Wales I do think England at Twickenham is um, is a potential banana skin because um, two years ago in Twickenham England lost a man very early and yet made Ireland fight for their win. Final scoreline mightn't indicate that, but that was a sweaty game. And Ireland, even against a seven-man pack, struggled in the scrum that day. And then last year on the final Saturday, when Ireland had a grand slam there, there for the taking, you know, the, again, England lost a man early on and again, Ireland wobbled a little bit. So I think that's something for England uh, maybe to look to, but... Uh, you'd be surprised at this stage given Ireland's general consistency. I mean, if you look at it from a statistical point of view, they've lost one game in their last 19. It happens to be a World Cup quarterfinal. 
but uh, they're actually a very consistent team and their levels of consistency is that's kind of a, a point of pride for them. So it would be a failure from this point, but that's uh, that's not something that Andy Farrell is going to be drumming home. He's he's going to uh, make sure that the that they stay on point. Well, it's going to be fascinating. Can anyone catch Ireland? We'll wait and see throughout the rest of the championship, but on the evidence of Friday night, it's going to take some doing. Peter Slotty, appreciate you joining me. Next up, we'll head over to Rome. We'll hear from Will Kelleher and Alex Lowe. They were there to witness England winning their opening match of a Six Nations for the first time since 2019. Hello everyone, we've gone from Marseille to Rome on the pod. Welcome along to Italy where we're standing on a gorgeous terrace uh, in the middle of the Eternal City overlooking the sunset going down. So we've tried to find an atmospheric spot for you guys so forgive some of the clattering about, engine noise, 2010 pop in the background. But we're right in the heart of Rome, we're on Saturday. We saw the closest game between Italy and England ever. Three points in it. Could have been a draw if Tommy Allen had kicked a penalty, although George Ford did miss a conversion too. But it wasn't the best game, really, was it, Alex? But quite a lot of intriguing stuff there from both sides. It was definitely the third best game of the weekend. But there was lots of interesting stuff. There was a point when it actually got really, really dull. But that was almost by design. It almost showed England changing how they were playing in the game, actually executing their new defensive style a lot more effectively, shutting down Italy. And for about 20 minutes, the game sort of folded in on itself. It wasn't perfect by any means. It was never going to be perfect for England. I think we saw both on both sides of the ball why they're having to change what they're doing from last year and how they're changing it. We know that the way they played in 2023 was a short-term project to get as deep into the World Cup as they could. Just route one, kick pressure, try and grind, grind out wins... They're going to expand what they do on both sides of the ball. It'll be much more aggressive on both sides of the ball. We saw bits of it. We saw a lot of it not work. But there's a blueprint there that is going to be fascinating now to follow with England through this championship as, as their appointments get tougher and tougher and tougher. Wales next week, then they end up Ireland and then, and then France. So we'll get into some of the detail because we've, we've, we've both written sort of a half a piece each on the attack and the defence. And we'll try and talk through for the listeners what we think we saw on Saturday yeah. but just as a sort of general point my sense is that the the coverage of England the win that wasn't very significant wasn't very convincing wasn't the sort of basball style statement that they were sort of talking about in the build-up it's actually been quite positive and a lot of us have and our colleagues from other papers have written about this being a fresh start and a lot of new combinations. Is does that what it feels like to you that you in another context we would have gone, oh wow, England have only beaten Italy by three points, a team they've never lost to, closest margin ever. Yeah, definitely. But there's a lot of different bits and pieces to this game with the debutants and everything else. Definitely. Put this game a year ago or two years ago when when England were, were last here in the middle of you know, they've had three really poor Six Nations championships in a row. Put this game in the middle of any of those three campaigns and you'd hold it up as an example of, of England hitting rock bottom. Their narrowest win over Italy, they were 17-8 down at one point. Only three times in the, in the past have they trailed Italy at half-time. Once was the, uh, the Rutgate, the, yeah. the Fox game at Twickenham. And the other was actually Stuart Lancaster's second game in charge when they had all of those new players. So in that context, this would have been seen and, and understandably so as not dissimilar to the to the Fiji game in the summer actually. However, we're not in that situation. This was a team that by necessity and design had five new players in it. They've lost 
hundreds and hundreds of caps worth of experience in Aaron Farrell, Ben Youngs, Courtney Laws, Johnny May. And as we touched on at the start, they they have to change how they play because the ceiling for what they could achieve playing the way they played in 2023 was low. It was, you know, it's not going to test the, the best teams. They fought brilliantly hard against South Africa in the semi-final in the pouring rain, which 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 played into England's hands that day. England have to change things. They have to evolve. And I know that we're all really bored because we had four years of Eddie Jones. They reached the World Cup final, and then literally that evening in the stadium in Tokyo, he's like, "This team's dead. We're going to build a new team." For three years, the conversation was, "We're building. We're building." It's, Jam to, promises of jam tomorrow, and we are a bit bored of that. This does feel different because there's it's not dissimilar to 2012 in, in the number of new caps. Not all of them would have played if, if he'd had a full strength squad. I don't think Fraser Dingwall would have started, for example, at 12. But yeah, Ollie Lawrence would um, have been involved. I think Ollie, Ollie would have played, or, or Manu if he'd been. And George Martin fit. would be there somewhere. George Martin, too. Would, yeah, they're, so they're possibly instead players. of Roots, who was the man of the match. So it's, it's really interesting because it, a lot went wrong as well. You know, they made some horrible defensive errors in the first half, bad reads, misalignments. They lacked punch and attack, but they don't England at the moment don't have a big powerful ball carrier. So in the context of where England are, it wasn't like overjoyed positive, but it was a step forward it felt. Yeah. Which is weird because they only won by three points and there were so many errors. But what I liked about it, I think, was I saw an identity in what this team could become. And this isn't going to be an overnight, and no one expected it to be basball on day one. Um, and, and by basball, it's not just swinging the back gung ho. It's yeah. it's a mindset of being front foot in what you do, and having an environment that allows the young players to bring the best of who they are. Right, and that's that's what Jamie George has talked about, and that's my understanding of what basball is. Sometimes it means you just put your foot on the accelerator, swing the bat, and see what you can do. But it's actually a lot deeper than that it's a lot it's a lot more nuanced than that and what England are trying to do now is create an environment where new players can come through can can actually bring the best of themselves onto the field and with with the ball in hand and in defense is to be front foot aggressive and we saw that is the way that they're going to go and what I like about it is that it feels fresh feels like a project that you know no one likes building 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 no one's talking about the next world cup I, I ban it on this podcast they've got to win now but the best way to win now is to play Evolve this way develop, yeah, it really yeah. you know it really isn't you know obviously if they play like they played on saturday against scotland at murrayfield i suspect because they'll be they'll be smarting from what happened at, in cardiff and that's in that's in three weeks time i appreciate but and, and italy uh, and ireland and, and, and france teams who will be really good at getting outside the blitz and, and some of the best in the world at doing that. You know, they're going to have to improve massively, but it does just feel like there's a different air around this team. Yeah. And, and, and that's important because, you know, it's been so difficult and, and turgid and negative. Like England, English rugby was in a three-and-a-half-year three downward spiral, um, and they, they bottomed out at the World Cup, and then they ground their way to a semi-final and a bronze medal. There's an upturn here. And I think that's what we're saying. There's a there's a sense of they're not they're not the finished article. They're they're literally just starting. But there's a sense about what they they could go and do with a group of young players who are exciting. And and that that's that's a good thing for us all to grab onto and follow. Yeah. I, I, th- I think some of it too is that if we if we're sort of pulling back the curtain a bit and talking from the journalist's perspective, which is our, our role, I suppose, on the yeah. right, we're all just a bit bored of bagging England. It's it's been a long time where we have followed around the world a dominant interesting England team mm. who are doing a lot of interesting stuff with the ball and 
playing some good rugby and ticking off brilliant wins. It's been a long time. So, and I think the way they grew through that World Cup was a bit of a hooker by crook, as we were talking about, and that came with the style that we all saw and fans booed in certain locations around France. But I think what we've found refreshing about the England setup this time is that there feels to be a new openness in lots of ways to play a bit more, to speak a bit more, to show their characters a bit more. Definitely lots of that's helped that Jamie George is the captain is in a yeah. really engaging figurehead. And I, and I like the fact that he spoke well on Thursday when he did his sort of captain's press conference about Basball and engaging with Ben Stokes and Joss Butler and you wrote a piece around it last week and that whole thing of that lacking the fear of failure being a key part of what they're trying to do mm. but then actually seeing it it wasn't hollow words it wasn't just yeah we're going to have a bang at it let's have a go you actually saw ways that they were trying to do that so if we go into the attack which we did well, on the let me just say on, on that which is really interesting because I did an interview with Ben Earl, ben Earl at the end of last year and we picked him because in each sport we try and pick someone who's had a big year and obviously 2023 for, for Ben was, was incredible came, into, came back into the England set up was England's player of the World Cup and he said that in his previous experiences with England, he felt that too often the message, the narrative from the team, from the players, often when he was out of the team as well, actually, what he read and what he heard players and coaches saying bore no resemblance to what was delivered on the weekend. And so that's where you get to the point where it's like, is English rugby being, is there gaslighting going on? Like, what, what on earth is happening where they're talking one game and, and delivering an, another? And it's not just about what happens on the field because you can't predict it necessarily, but it's about intent. And even Ben Earl was saying, like, I saw what was being said, I heard what was being said, and it bore no resemblance to what England were trying to do. And you don't bring anyone with you like that, because in the end, people start to think they're being treated like idiots, which is really what happened. Certainly with us in the media, you, us journalists, we, we would listen to what was being said and immediately doubt it, question it, not believe it, because there have been so many examples at the weekend where it hadn't happened. There'd been no evidence of it. And it was all slogans under Eddie. It was, it was, it was a lot of that. You know, and, and I was optimistic coming to Rome that what Jamie George was talking about was going to be delivered. I never expected them to come and put 80 on them like the great England team of pre-03 did. That was not, that's not what I mean. What they're actually going to try and deliver on the field um, is what's being articulated to the fans so that everyone can join them on this on this project. I'm not going to use the word journey. <laughs> project journey, whatever you're going to call it, yeah. So so why, we did a piece in the Times on Monday that I did uh, a write-through on what they were trying to do in attack and you did defence. So should we start with the attack and what yeah. we sort of thought they were trying to do? It was something actually, Courtney Laws, we used a line of him in an analysis piece before the, the weekend saying he liked to see England play as soon as they get into the opposition half, not just wait until the 22 to open up. And they, they obviously did that, didn't they? Very right from the start of yeah. the game, George Ford was going wide, Dingwall was going wide, and there were a couple of times where it got a bit clumsy or people are in the way of each other, which, which comes with new combos and debutants and everything else. But immediately you saw that intent to go yeah. wider, didn't they? And actually it bore fruit when Tommy Freeman cut the line came through on the sort of outside yeah. arc and Elliot Daly was there to finish it off. So that was an initial positive, wasn't it, from the attacking side of it? Definitely, and it was really evident. I mean, I think they're kicking metres away down in this game. About 200 metres less than the World Cup, yeah. And I think those 200 metres would almost all have been metres that previously would have been kicked inside the opposition half. Cause they, they stabs to the corners and things. Yeah, yeah. but I, mean, I don't mind... I mean, creative kicking, it's fine. What I mean is, like, they, they were box kicking. They, they were, they'd have been kicking to bring the ball down on, on, the, outs, on the 22 to, to win a tap back, to create some chaos, to try and play from there. Um, what they're trying to do here is, is play, play, move the ball 
from deeper, pretty much on halfway. They're, they're not going to play yet from inside their own half. But move the ball from halfway, because by doing it, by attacking from there, you can play with greater depth. And that's what we saw with the Elliot Daly try. England attacked with so much depth. That's how they got outside Italy. And it was, it was a beautifully taken try. And I think Tommy Freeman coming in off the wing is, you know, we, we saw him in Australia 2022, re- like really promising start to his test career. Big physical guy. And, and I think he made a really good impression. And he's going to be important because, as I'm sure we're about to come on to, for all the, the intent England now have to try and move the ball, to, to manipulate space, they struggle for punch. They don't have power in the bat line. I mean, Borthwick even said um, to us after the game that you know, English rugby just hasn't produced that kind of physical, powerful back in a long time. Now, obviously, Ollie Lawrence is injured at the moment. I actually think he's more than just a... A basher. We've seen it for Bath this this season. He's brilliant outside centre. Joe uh, Singer has been picked and dropped and picked and dropped multiple times by England. I think they've decided he's not the answer. And so well, they're going to have to try and use Ethan Roots and, and create line breaks in another way. And, and you know, there's way more that to come from this attack. But in terms of intent, in terms of, of, of delivering what they talked about, you know, it, it was there. It's, this is just the start. It was rusty. It was it was a bit cluttered at times. That was a well-timed Roman ambulance there for all the injuries that <laughs> yeah, he yeah, had. Yeah. So Ellis Gendre was the one that pulled out before the game with a foot injury. They're hopeful he might he might play against Wales. He's another key ball carrier, isn't it? Although since he's moved to Bristol and maybe moved into the Borthwick system, the props carry less, don't they? But hmm. he'd be another one punching the gain line. Manu Tuolangi's another one that Borthwick clearly wants to get back in the team. Ollie Lawrence, as you mentioned, George Martin's another one who. I thought before the tournament and before he got injured could be a hell of a star mm. of this tournament. And you're right, Borthwick was saying that after the game to us, wasn't he, that England haven't really produced these big hulking ball carriers for a while. So he's, he was sort of working with what he was given, right, wasn't he? he Definitely. Was lots yeah. of players with, as he puts it, good ball movement in them. So guys like Fraser Dingwall, Elliot Daly, mm. George Ford, Henry Slade. And he said he a needs few, someone to cut the line. He said a few times that this he hadn't envisaged picking five new players in this yeah. in this squad. And he, slash didn't want to. Slash didn't exactly. <laughs> you know, he's, there's coded language there. He 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 delivered what he could deliver. And I think the challenge offensively, if they don't have Ollie Lawrence back for a while, if they don't have Manu, is just to manufacture ways and bring in players in certain positions to. Just give them that those carries through the guts a bit. That you know the, the it's, direction. It's in, in the Bundyaki to the Gary Ringrose, isn't it? It's like the, the Irish system is very yeah. clever and intelligent and cohesive and built for a long time and has got intelligent yeah. ball players in there. But sometimes you need some big lad to go yeah. through. And, don't and, uh, you? You know, Tory Freeman is, is is not a small lad. And actually, Faye Waboso came on and had a big carry, didn't he? Yeah. Kind of running back style, carried about five defenders with him for a while. He only got three minutes off off the bench. They're going to have to manufacture ways at the moment. And you know, let's all be sensible about it. England don't have a, a Bundyaki. So why don't we go to your your half of our piece that's in Monday's paper, mm. the defence. And it was possibly even more obvious what they were trying to do in defence, and it broke a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, it was obvious because it went, it went horribly wrong. But twice. then they sort of actually one well, of the things we're it. finding about the Borthwick teams, which definitely wasn't a thing in the Eddie Jones teams, is that they're they're better at thinking on the hoof and yep. changing things mid-game. Yep. Whereas England in the old days would be very good at getting ahead of teams and keeping their foot on the throat. But if they were being caused problems and couldn't get away in a game, mm. they weren't very good at fighting it out. Whereas this team, almost to a fault, are, are fighting things out where you think, no, I'd 
come on, just be dominant. Yeah. But. There's what there's one oddity about listening to Steve Borthwick in the last week, which is he keeps saying they've only had three training sessions yeah. since it. In they've two been weeks. together for a fortnight. I mean, I, that doesn't quite add up. And I, I think he's trying to make a, a make a point there, or just labour a point, make make, make an excuse. Frankly, is what I'm trying to say. But th- they weren't they weren't all aligned. And and what they're trying to do is is blitz in the way that South Africa blitz shut down the playmakers or at the very least force them to make a rapid decision under huge pressure and and obviously they've recruited Felix Jones who was South Africa's defence coach for the last four years and he was involved with them prior to that so he's won two World Cups with the box and I was just looking back through a few examples of South Africa and that the first one that sprung to mind was obviously the first test of the Lions 2021 the Lions pick a, a bat line that's clearly designed to, to get outside the box ball defense. movers ball movers paced Elliot Daly at 13 the clock has ticked just over three minutes when he gets his first touch uh, a missed pass from Dan Bigger which he catches a split second before he's absolutely creamed by Lucanio Am 10 metres behind the gain line that killed the Lions never pass the ball again for the series that whole game much. plan <laughs> that they had was killed with that one one tackle we were in, in Marseille watch Scotland South Africa Finn Russell had no attacking options whatsoever in that game at the World Cup Scotland didn't fire a shot because South Africa's blitz defence just shut them down and that's what that's effectively what England are, they're going to have to tweak it because they don't have some of the big physical guys but that's the that's the strategy what England weren't ready for in the first half was they weren't put they weren't aligned defensively so Oli Chesham twice shot up but the guy next to him wasn't wasn't in the disconnected right. it was probably, either disconnected or hadn't gone gone too so the there's just the gap was enormous and Denningham weren't set for the scramble in behind so the the uh sorry the second try the, the loop from Garbisi and then and then out wide is it Ethan Roots and Joe Marler trying to scramble back I mean that you know that's just not they're just always going to get done for space now, aren't they yeah what the box did against France in that World Cup quarter final was and France so good so quick they did break the system but then the box scrambled brilliantly. And, and what England did change second half was their alignment as they blitzed was much better. They got into the faces of the Italians. They forced fumbles. They forced knock-ons. They forced errors. And that's where the game sort of shut down for a while. But there, there were a couple of times in that, in that second half when the Italians did get around the outside. But this time, Chandler Cunningham South is steaming across. Much better athlete, quicker wiping out the, the the ball carrier big tackle uh, Faye Raboso did one it was in England's um, it was in the Italian on Monte Nuana, yeah Italian it was 22? in the Italian 22 yeah right at the end yeah it's, that's just a, that's a scramble too and, and that that sort of connectivity between the blitz up front and then the scramble in behind was missing in the first half but it was there in the second half so again not perfect by any means but also a sign of what they're going to try and do and and, it, and I asked both the afterwards is it, now we've seen this is it a kind of like this is us from now on this is our system you know what we're going to bring the onus is on you to try and beat it it's not quite as basic as that and interestingly I was just looking up something that Finn Russell said about that Scotland South Africa game at the World Cup he said first half the box targeted him they came blitzing on him second half they blitzed the guys outside him so they either forced him to make quick decisions in uncomfortable decisions or they pressured the guys outside him which cut down all his options that's the kind of layers I think we will start to see or that we need to start to see from the Felix Jones England defence so yeah not perfect by any means but again in really interesting development in in what this England team could look like and you know it'll take them a bit of time to to, to get aligned on it yeah so the, there's a a decent amount of analysis on both sides of the ball for England. Um, 
before we head off, because it is getting a little bit chilly on our terrace. I know everyone's <laughs> crying us in loads of rivers that we're on a lovely sunsetting terrace in Rome. But we better do a couple of minutes on Italy because mm. they're so obviously improving year on year, aren't they? Like they laid on loads of stuff in attack with Kieran Crowley, then they hit their own version of rock bottom in the World Cup by getting absolutely yeah. thrashed twice. All Blacks, France, took them to the cleaners. They've got rid of Crowley. They've now got Quesada, who's playing a slightly more pragmatic game, but he's managed to keep some of that lovely attack as well, which we saw for the Garbisi loop and the Allen try and the bits in between too. So we were saying, sitting in the stands, Alex, weren't we, at the Olympico, they must be such a frustrating team to support, watch and coach because they get into lovely positions to score brilliant tries and then they just the tiny little rubbishy mm. areas of knock-ons and things that fit people force against them and line-outs that don't go the way you think oh it was just that period put when it together wow it was that you know england england had done well frankly to be three points down was it at half time like, yeah you know ford had just kicked some goals and they scored they'd scored but england england your sort of sense was that italy had by had a, a better had a better first half than the scoreboard had suggested, but so England were actually in a good position at half-time. I felt, given how the first half had gone, and that's where Italy needed to grab hold of the game again. And Tommy Allen missed a penalty, yeah, which you know, which, right, which yeah. you mentioned earlier. At the time, that just felt not decisive, but England's. I think they'd just taken the lead mm. with Alex Mitchell's try to land that penalty would have would have just put the pressure back on England a bit but he missed it and England were able to kind of kill the game for 20 minutes and and, and even when they conceded at the end they were beyond the score so it didn't matter yeah yeah and it, yeah they were beyond the score it didn't gave Italy a, a losing bonus but they did it and you kind of think if they if they'd managed to score one of their chances one of those two line breaks I said earlier when they, they got outside and Cunningham South in particular shut it down you think if he scored then 10 minutes from time pressures back on England and that's what you mean about the kind of frustration of Italy they're, like, they're almost there but at the point when the game they had to take control of the game they couldn't do it because England England did and that's the step they've got to take to just turn these increasingly narrow defeats they almost beat France first yeah. game last year almost beat Scotland last year you sense there are some, some wins in this team they've just got to grab those big moments when they come yeah just Sunday in Dublin next week that'll, that'll be pretty walkover for Italy I suppose so <laughs> it's brutal isn't it this tournament but we do love it um, we better sign off um, from our nice terrace in Rome as the sky goes pink and orange lovely view isn't it we, we do apologise same colour as your April spritz oh Incoming. He hasn't got an Aperol <laughs> I haven't, no. It's a beer and Moretti. What? Um, so anyway, <laughs> we, will, we will next on the ruck be talking all about that game that wasn't the game that we game. were at. Wow. So, n- right, th- that's our dispatch from Rome done. And next up for England is Wales on Saturday at Twickenham. But for now, let's let the others delve into the absolute chaos that was Wales-Scotland. Now their heart rates have dropped to healthy levels. Take it away, Alfie. 
so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Alex. Good to hear from them in Rome following England's victory. And the big question now is Mark Palmer, who's joined me as Will teed up there. How is the heart rate after an absolutely bonkers game in Cardiff? Absolutely incredible. And, you know, as somebody who was there to cover the 38 the all Calcutta Cup draw in 2019, I don't think anything could ever surpass that. But it, it did get pretty darn close. It was an, just a truly ridiculous game of rugby. Um, had pretty much everything in it. And, you know, I was uh, drove straight home from the game on Saturday night. Um, and about three o'clock in the morning, I was in, I can't even remember which station it was, it was somewhere in middle England. I turned to my passenger and said, can you imagine if we'd actually lost that game, just how bad it would be? Because it felt pretty dark at that point in our circumstances. But, you know, had the meltdown actually gone to full fruition and they'd lost the game I dread to think what the what the atmosphere in that car would have been like <laughs> yeah well, there's so much for us to get into I was thinking about it I don't really know where to start here but Scotland cruising 27 nil up Wales looking in disarray and then four unanswered tries Wales bring it back to within a point they couldn't quite complete what would have been an utterly remarkable comeback Mark with the ghosts of Cardiff past just sort of haunting you in the back of your mind as that second half was going on Absolutely. I mean, I, I did kind of uh, turn to, to, to my Welsh colleagues at halftime and say, don't worry, if there's a way to be found that, to muck this up, we will find it. I, but it was only kind of half in jest. Um, but I think nobody could see any way back at that point because, you know, there was literally, you know, a chasm between the sides in that first half. Uh, Wales, you know, probably played as, as many had expected them to, a very callow side and, and showing up a lot of that inexperience. But Scotland also executed their, their game plan to perfection in the first 40. That You know, there was a lot of variety to their way kicking game much better than it had been at the World Cup and they took their opportunities in a really clinical fashion uh, which again has been a, rec- a recurring problem previously so you know and it wasn't even as if it's a game of two halves because Scotland come out in the, the second half and then after two minutes score a, another worldly of a try so you were 27 nil up you're thinking right that there cannot possibly be a way that you can you can, you can let this slip but I, I, I think, as we were saying off air, that Scotland, and this is the difference between them and, and, and you know the truly leading sides in the world at the moment, that they still have these 10, 15, even 20 minutes as it was at the weekend spells where it seems to collectively just go um, mentally, technically, tactically. It's not just a handful of players in those instances. It seems to be a, a sort of cross-board malaise. And as you know, Finn Russell, the captain, spoke about after the game, he felt there was a bit of complacency had crept in. He also felt that players were potentially not taking on board the messages that were coming on the field around you know not competing at the breakdown or not throwing as many numbers in there. That's where they got continually on the wrong side of the referee. And we had this run of you know, 14, 15 consecutive penalties, which is almost unheard of at test level. So just this, a, a collective kind of brain fade that, and, and you know, 
know, that also the flip side of that is that Wales were also extremely good in the second half. So let's not discount that. And, and again, start taking their opportunities and, and playing like kind of <laughs> prime all blacks in, in some of their back play. I, I do think, though, however, the, one of the bits that maybe got lost in the, the post-match madness was that, you know, Scotland did for the last 10 minutes bring it back. They, uh, you know, ha- having had that utterly dreadful 20, 25 minutes, they did um, manage to regain a sense of themselves and the game. And closed it out quite well because uh, you know, particularly having played a you know twenty minutes of the match with a man down with two yellow cards, it would have been very easy for them to sort of to tip right over that edge in, into defeat, and and they and they found a way to win, which I suppose is we, we do need to cling to, and and the fact that they've you know hadn't done that for twenty two years, and maybe we can get back onto Scotland in a second, Mark, but just to shift the attention to Wales, it's one of the funny things about this game, isn't it, in that Scotland won. But there's this sense of disappointment and questions around that team. Wales lost, but actually what that second 40 minutes has done for the optimism around Warren Gatland's side means you feel there's a platform for them to build upon here. It's right. I mean, it's, it's, it sounds perverse, but I, I absolutely agree. That's kind of how the, the consensus amongst both the sort of Welsh and uh, and the Scottish packs after the game was very much that. And, you know, I think Wales in that first half were everything that we probably expected them to, to be or not be. They, they looked every inch the kind of inexperienced side that they uh, that they are. But, you know, with that inexperience comes a certain kind of, um, I don't know, naivety, would you call it, um, that, that also a carefree sort of spirit that when they were given that licence by Warren Gatland to kind of, get off the leash a bit in the second half they really grabbed it you know played with great freedom some great attack in rugby um and some and, some, and then some real joy with that mall where you know from Scotland's mall defense has been a real strength to the side in the last couple of years uh, Wales took them to the cleaners in the second half so as you say both in terms of the the, the style and the substance of it there's, there's definitely something for them to build on there I saw Steve James in in his report looking back on the game suggesting that that second half was the blueprint now for how Wales need to play under Warren Gatland and maybe it's moving away from the traditional physical direct confrontational style of previous Gatland teams and it is injecting pace into it someone like Yoan Lloyd at fly half and stretching teams would you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, the first half, it was very much the, the blueprint of a Warren Gatlin team of old that, the, you know, they the, the kicked the leather off it, tried to come route one, which is not, you know, was not an unsurprising tactic against Scotland because that's where teams have had joy against them. I'm sure we spoke about that last last week, but they didn't at all. Scotland were smashing them on the gain line and, and the kind of speed of ball, the, the, the chasm between the teams there was incredible until Thomas Williams came on at scrum half, who's been, you know, the form player in, in Wales this year really injected some zip and pep there and, and they were a side transformed once they started putting pace on the ball winning you know winning those collisions it, 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 the whole field was transformed so I think yeah you know you would look at it and say that they must go the, the way of the second 40 than the first not not just because they conceded 20 20 points but that the just the, the whole magnitude of their threat was was utterly different and do you think looking ahead to that game at Twickenham then for the first 40 minutes people would have probably been looking at at what they saw and thought blimey this is going to be a tough six nations for Wales and it could still be that but looking at Twickenham looking at an England team that as we've just heard from Will and Alex have a new defensive system that works better in the second half but we still saw players shooting out of the line in the first and the Italian attack being able to exploit that that could be an area that Wales look at after they injected pace into it against Scotland and think they're also able to hurt England. 
They will definitely be looking at inspiring opportunities. And, you know, I think that the Welsh attack is, is at least the equal of the Italian one in terms of buying out and then taking opportunities. So I think they, you know, they've got to take confidence from that. That one is shaping up really, really tantalisingly because, you know, what before you might have expected, you know, going on World Cup form and the way those type teams played, that it, it might be a, a quite a dour contest and not, not the most exciting. But actually, if there's a bit more ambition being shown by both of those, then, uh, you know, it could be quite intriguing. What was it like in, in stadium, Mark? Was there a real point where you just kind of felt something change? And with the roof closed, which there was a lot of chat about in the build-up to the game, and, and that Cardiff atmosphere, what was that like, really, I suppose? And, and I'm asking that because I wonder whether this is a second-half performance that Welsh rugby needed, given the negativity around the game. It's given this fan base something to hold on to to get behind this team. Big time, and I think first half it's never quiet in there, as you know, particularly with the when the roof was shut to keep it all in. But it definitely didn't feel as intense and 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 on top of you as has been in the case in in previous visits when things have been going well for Wales. Probably, I think probably after the second Welsh try, the you could feel the belief start to build, and from that point, I think Finn Russell mentioned it, or referenced it in his post-match presser that. It kind of was a prime example of how sort of team and crowd come together, and it was absolutely irresistible. Certainly, when <laughs> went up against a frail Scotland uh, system, so the noise uh, in the, in that last, or probably from minutes fifty to seventy, was was unlike anything I've experienced there, um, and just just intense, intense. And again, it, it, it feels so claustrophobic. I, I can only imagine what it's like when you're actually in the middle of it, trying to trying to resist so yeah it definitely was the fill-up that, that, that the whole game needed the whole Welsh game needed because um, as we know it's not been short of uh, rancour in the la- in, in recent years so let's round things off then maybe mention Wales in a second Scotland first of all France at home what do they need to change for what actually Mark this is a massive game for Scotland isn't it looking back to our preview of the whole six nations the questions of can Scotland beat an Ireland or a France and we think having France at home is the most likely place that a win will come from. Huge game for them. What do they need to change and do better this weekend? Well, you're absolutely right, Alfie, because we'd, we'd said before that you know the whole tenor of the championship or their Scotland's championship would be decided by that Cardiff game. You know they've won, so suddenly these uh, these two home games back to back against France and England look like real opportunities. And many caveats to sprinkle over those, but you know the, the, as we mentioned earlier on, Scotland have um, a, you know a, a very good recent record against France at home. I think that the key bit for them will be avoiding the game becoming too fast and loose. Scotland wanted to be fast and loose to an extent, but not to the extent that we saw saw in Cardiff because, you know, France, um, by their very nature, are a team that will absolutely punish you if if, if things get ragged. Again, mall defence is something I'm going to mention. It sounds boring, but, you know, against that French pack, it's it's massive. Uh, And I think Scotland will be buoyed by having Grant Gilchrist back in there this week after not being, after being suspended for Cardiff. So uh, he's a, a real strong technician in that area. Just just avoiding this kind of real undulation in performance in game. It, it's you know it's bad enough when that's from match to match, but you, you simply can't won't get away with you know those kind of peaks and troughs of performance against a team that you know are still in there with a fight for the title. So yeah, from saying that, that everything hinges on Cardiff, we now say everything hinges on this one. <laughs> Again, if they, if they were to win that, if they were to beat France, then they really do have momentum on their side. And just quickly, actually, one final one on on Scotland, Mark. How much of it does it come down to that front five? That's always been my question mark over. Scotland for the last few years, really. We know we've got great players in that team. Competition in the back row is right there. 
The back line is littered with talent. How much of it is having a front five that has the heft and the brutality almost to be able to compete with a team like France? Absolutely. And I think, you know, front five actually showed up well against Wales and potentially better than, than people were expecting. As I mentioned, they kind of smashed them on the game line first half. They certainly weren't giving up anything in the physical states. And set piece, uh, again, first half went well. Line out got a bit wobbly second half, uh, as we know. But Grant Gilchrist is is uh, key to all of that. Line out leader coming back. They've lost one big experienced player in Richie Gray, who unfortunately looks like he's going to be out for the rest of the championship with the, the bicep injury picked up at the, the Principality. But you know, Gilchrist coming back in more than compensates. I think, you know, set piece wise, whatever it is with the line, whether you blame it on thrower, jumpers, lifters, combination of the two, again, it has this tendency to, to go missing for 5, 10, 15 crucial minutes. So that simply cannot happen against France because, you know, as a set piece force, they're, um, they're uh, you know, right up there in this championship. And so, final word on Wales then. People are going to level the accusation at me that I'm being overly negative here, but I still look at it and see as great a second half performance that was. They've lost one. They now go to Twickenham and England are beatable. There's no question about that, but England will still be the favourites. They then face France and Ireland and then potentially it's Italy at the end of the championship and quite where they could be. I'm looking ahead a bit, but where this Wales team could be heading into that final game. Is there pressure on them to get a result this weekend? I think undoubtedly, undoubtedly there is pressure on them because, as we said, the schedule is shaping up in such a way that you know if you go not from two, then there's some pretty messy potential scenarios that that, that arise. But my own sense is that they, they can't pile that pressure on top of themselves um, because that's potentially what happened in the first half on Saturday, and and you saw how kind of you know desperate things got. They were forcing things really wasn't any sort of calmness and composure to the player but whereas when they actually played with that freedom in the second half you saw a much more um, a much more rounded and, and effective version of this team so I think they can acknowledge the pressure without being a prisoner to it well Mark appreciate you joining me enjoy Murrayfield thank you very much Alfie hopefully uh, <laughs> hopefully an easier affair for the for the heart rate heart rate for you this weekend indeed indeed I don't think we can survive a, a second one like that <laughs> <laughs> Well, we shall wait and see. Thank you to everyone for tuning in to this week's episode of The Ruck. The Six Nations for 2024 up and running. Thank you to Peter and Slotty for joining me to look back on Ireland's win. Good to hear from Will and Alex as well and to Mark to recap events in Cardiff. We will be back with you next week on the podcast. And if you want to get in touch with the podcast, we now have an email address. So theruck at thetimes.co.uk theruck at thetimes.co.uk. Drop us an email if you want to get in touch with the show and have your email read out. Make sure you follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from and we'll see you next week. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers. Airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.